We are now in Matthew uh, chapter 19. We pick it up in verse 13. So read along with me if you would, please. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But his disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, what good things, a thing, sorry, singular, shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, well, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures and treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. And they said, well, who then can be saved? Now Jesus looked at them and he said to them, with men, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and he said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Classic Peter statement. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, God in heaven, settle our hearts and captivate us now, I pray. Redeem every second. Let this time be perfect that we understand better, that we know you better. Lord, that you would draw us in and that every dendrite in our brains would be firing to know you. Every craving in our soul would hunger for you. Every bit, Lord, of who we are now surrender to you as you reveal yourself and your word and your call on our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would worship you with our attention, with our retention and holding your word and our intention to put it into practice, Lord, let it be so much more than information, but rather transformation. So God, we give you this time. 
I pray you would redeem every second. And God, that you would come upon me and immerse me, that you would be seen, and that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, that you would speak to each one of us, bespoke to exactly where we are, that we would hear you and know you, and that word that you want to speak into our life we would get, and that it would just, Lord, that you today would be the center of it all. So, have your way now, we pray. We commit this time to you and pray your Holy Spirit to do His work. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't ever just assume it's true because any man with a microphone, me included, ever says it. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible be that for which you test and hold all things to be true or false. Now, there are major landmarks in Jesus' ministry since His adult life. We can look at these milestones and we can kind of sort of gauge where Jesus is from them. The first, of course, is emergence, that place where he is baptized there in the Jordan at Bethabara, where he arises. And, of course, the Holy Spirit lands like a dove upon him. The voice comes from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus then, of course, will disappear as he then, though being identified by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then from there, the next thing we're going to know is he disappears for 40 days to be tempted in the wilderness, and then will return and begin to gather disciples. The second stage then would be, if you will, his popular ministry. That time up in Galilee, Mark will focus most of his attention to that time of the Galilean ministry. The third of those landmarks of four, if you will, will be Jesus' descent, his if you will, his exodus from, from Galilee and that trek down 67 miles down south to Jerusalem. Luke takes such an attention to this that 10 of Luke's chapters will be given exclusively over to this particular issue. From chapters 9, verse 51, through to the middle of 19, we'll be focusing on Jesus' descent from, and ascent, because Jerusalem's on a hill, from Galilee up in the north down into Jerusalem. From that time, by the way, Jesus is consumed with the idea of seeking to save. And it is important to recognize that. In Luke, we get those precious things like the parable of the prodigal son, the woman searching for the one lost coin, or the shepherd, the one lost sheep. We get the situation of the Good Samaritan, all during that time when Jesus is, is, is heading south from Galilee, that third area. And then the fourth, of course, ultimately, is public murder and resurrection. And that third area... Really, to be honest, though Matthew is not required to give it to us in a linear uh, particular uh, perspective, it is important to recognize only one of the four Gospels actually tells us that it's intended to be linear. In other words, play by play, in order, chronologically. And that is the Gospel of Luke. He says that in the first verse in two, when he speaks to Theophilus, his, his recipient, and says to provide an orderly account. And the idea of that is in a linear fashion. But a class, and by the way, we do read, according to Colossians 4, that Luke actually was a Gentile. It would be classic for him to give it to us in a Greek mindset, in that kind of play-by-play. Matthew, on the other hand, we know, originally named Levi, is somebody that gives it to us more thematically. However, chapters 18 through 20, that we're now in the middle of, are those area that we would look at as Luke's third portion, that area of Jesus is then descending from Galilee and ultimately ascending into Jerusalem. 
In that area, it begins, if you remember, with this issue of Jesus, again, consumed with saving through forgiveness and restoration. And in that time, though, his disciples are arguing over who's greatest. And that will become the fundament. It's the bookends of chapters 18 through 20. They ask who's the greatest. He brings a child, and a child becomes the focal point. And he tells us from that, if you will, that unless we're converted and become like this child, really that's our entrance requirement, if you will, into the genuine eternal greatness that God seeks to instill in each of us. Then he talks about saving the straying sheep and sinning brother through forgiveness and restoration. And then we, as his disciples, practicing that forgiveness and restoration as servants and spouses. And now children are the focus again. It is important to recognize that in 18 through 20, again, they'll start with greatness. Jesus will tell us of the first being last and the last first at the end of this portion. And then at the end of this, he'll talk about the greatness of serving in chapter 20. And then it'll be that the blind will finally see. Then chapter 21 begins with Jesus' triumphal entry. So those three chapters, Jesus tells us, do you want to be great? What that really should look like from the sight of God. Now, I don't know about you. I realize, and I'm going to sound like a grandpa to say this, there are generations out there right now that greatness is just not instilled in. I don't see, in some people, it's like, we're just happy to get it done, and then if, if I want to be great at anything, I'd rather be great at Halo. And, and then there's something like that. And then, but I realize that there's some here, and I look at you, and I realize there is a desire in you to do so much more than just hang out with the status quo instilled within you if you've said yes to jesus god desires within you to be something that changes the world to be an atom splitter and these chapters are so pertinent to us in that particular arena what's interesting is that what we look at here is we're going to see the beauty of a child and children in this situation and then it'll be contrasted if you will oddly enough with a grown-up who by the way is in everything points and all points success from the from the world's perspective and great from the world's perspective but not in ours, as God shows us. And there's our problem. So look at it with me. It tells us in verse 13 then, Then little children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on him and pray. Now that's a classic thing for every teacher that had disciples, and Jesus wasn't the only one. The children were brought to be blessed. Interestingly enough, we find here that the disciples are rebuking them. Now Luke, now we both have, we have texts, that counter this in Luke 18, by the way, we'll see, it tells us in that particular text, in Luke 18, 15, that they brought infants. It wasn't just little children, as we might see, that would be like, hey, Jesus, and they can talk about it. But women carrying little swaddling babies. And in, the ironic thing is, it has to be both, because notice in verse 13, who are the disciples rebuking, according to the verse? The Greek is very careful to mention that it doesn't say anything about the people bringing the children. Did you notice that? The focus is that children were brought. And the disciples are rebuking children. Interesting, Jesus had said in the last chapter that if you were going to stumble children, it would have been better if you took a millstone and put it around your neck, thrown in the sea. He takes this very seriously. And it seems strange to me that the two things that the disciples did more in Scripture than anything else is they argued over who would be greatest and keep people from coming to Jesus. Don't you find comfort, strangely enough, that these are the guys Jesus is going to flip around and change the world with? They really started at quite the deficit. So the children are being brought. The disciples are like, hey, 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 this is below Jesus. Stop bothering this guy. He's got a healing ministry. We've got a kingdom to build. Jesus actually says that in verse 13, or verse 14, let 
the children come to me. Don't forbid them. Now, you're aware of the fact let and make are two very different things. To make you do something, chances are I am, in one way or another, forcing you to do something against your will. To tell a teenager, clean your room. You're probably going to make them. But to let them is something they want to do that they're simply looking for permission on. I find this interesting because the children were coming already. But the disciples had stepped in. And and don't miss this scene because we can do the same thing as Christians here. In a very simple, genuine, pure and vulnerable faith, they're coming to Jesus. And others are stepping in and making it hard on them. They saw no restriction until someone stepped in now and started putting in territories. And I've learned this. This was a classic example last week. Children were let loose in the sanctuary after the service. And you can tell, because the first thing that happens is the piano starts going off. I come in here, one person's banging on the piano, one person's playing the bass. The big upright bass that's in the corner happens to be mine. That's the good news. Another person sits down at a 400-year-old organ, and that's where we have to start putting restrictions. But there was something I learned from that. The kids really claim all the territory that's around them unless you put restrictions on them. And that's kind of an exciting thing because Jesus tells us, you guys should be learning from these kids. He tells us this, let the little children come to me. They already want to come. You're probably aware of the fact that in most countries now in the Western world, we do everything we can to restrict the children from coming to Christ. And the church sits idly by. We have a very unique opportunity in this country, beloved, because they have a thing called religious education. We could actually go into the the schools and share Jesus with people. Could you imagine? In America, I could be arrested for that. Here, it's strange that we could sit and think, why aren't we doing something about that? I don't know how long that's going to last. Kids have learned how to chant mantras. They've learned how to meditate. They've learned how to do their own yoga. They've certainly learned, by the way, much about jihad. But what about the real Jesus? Oh, that God would raise up an army to get to the schools. And Jesus has let him come. For Notice it says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now you've got to walk through that in a moment and start thinking that through. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Of these children like this? What does that mean? So you pray. Now, look at Some of you, I believe this is the truth for your history. Some of you, I don't think that was what happened. But do you remember when you were a little kid? What it was like if you were in a healthy home. You felt safe. You felt carefree. And you were adventurous. You were safe because you knew, to be honest that you were guarded by parents who were constantly looking out for you and they were much bigger than you were and the big world around didn't seem so scary because your parents were always a wall between the world and you. You felt safe. And you felt carefree. You didn't have to worry about bills, maintaining relationships, jobs, responsibilities. 
Back then, your job was to turn anything around you. If you were a girl, I'm not too sure what happened. I, I have a twin sister, but I didn't watch her much on that. But boys, usually you just took whatever you could put in your hands and made it a weapon. Did you notice that? It doesn't matter if it's a straw, it's still a gun or a sword or however. And that's just kind of the way it works. But there was something creative going on that whatever it was around you, was if it was in hand's reach, it got in your hands and you did something with it and it turned into a whole new world. Something happened. This was our childhood. If you were in one of those places... It was adventurous, it was carefree, and it was safe. Because really, we knew we were loved, and we knew we were loved by someone bigger and greater than we were. So we were cared for and we were protected. Now I know that's not every one of your case. It wasn't mine. My mother passed away when I was 11. She was dying of cancer from the moment I knew her. My father was gone quite a bit. There was quite a bit of drama in the household. And we were gone a bit as a result of it. And I remember not, never ever really thinking about being a child as a kid. I was so sick of that stuff as if I'd had enough of it, but I never really had any. But I remember coming to Jesus. And God used a woman singing a nursery rhyme, of all things. Something that you would have sung to a child And God gave me my childhood back. And he restored me in such a way that I'm much more of a little kid now than I ever was as a a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old. I wonder, you guys, I wonder. I mean, you you kind of look back and you ache for those simpler days, you know? Those days when you look back and you could just run around and it didn't matter and you didn't live in fear and you didn't finally so exhausted from striving and all the responsibilities and all the weight that seems like it's on your shoulders. And you crave to go back to those days. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, beloved. It's like that. As such. As that. Never again a concern or a worry. Tears wipe from our eyes. Total peace. Total rest. And everything in front of us, an oyster to explore. You guys, I get it. And I think I get why people want the stuff that the world chases after. You ever really think about it? Why do people really want all that money or all that power or all that fame? You ever wonder if maybe they think if they got that, they could get back to that state one more time? They think, well, look at all the freedom I could have now if I just had enough money. And I could explore again. I could go to places that, like Aruba or Ibiza or someplace that, you know, these islands that no one's ever even heard of. I could just go there and get the shirt just to get the shirt and come back or the Starbucks mug and that'd be enough. You know, and, and to think maybe I could have that. And the, the sad part, though, is then you get all that stuff and you don't get any of that. Instead, what happens is now you feel burdened to take care of and maintain and protect the stuff that was supposed to give you freedom. And that's exactly what we're going to see with the next guy. But consider for just a moment, if that was ever you, free, safe, carefree, I guess this is the kingdom of heaven, you guys. This is what it really should look like. You know why? Because we were protected and loved and cared for by someone so much bigger. It isn't just dying and going to heaven. You're aware of that, right? The kingdom of heaven starts here, right? 
shouldn't we live that way now? Yeah, there might be some crazy people out there and there might be some people with very ill intent, but you still are loved and cared for by a Father who adores you, who rejoices over you with singing, and whose thoughts for you outnumber the sand on the shore. Do you know that, God? And how intimate is he with you? I get it. And I realize why Jesus tells us in John 3 and 3, 3 and 3, 7 that we must be born again because when you are, you're, you're a child again. 1 Peter 1, 23 says we were born again by incorruptible seed. 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that we grow thereby. That's where we start is getting in his word. And then he tells us in, in 2 Peter 3, 18 to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we grow is to understand more His grace and to know Him better. And that's going to be contrasted now with this guy. Because on one side, everything that you want can clearly and easily be found in Jesus. And on the other side, everything that you think that you can get isn't going to do it. I had a time where I had more money than I could spend and I had more popularity than I would ever want. I can tell you it was the most miserable time of my life. Well, it tells us here in verse 16 that behold now. Behold means now, really, you need to, take, to focus on this. Don't just read past it quickly. One came to him. It tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, again, the countertext to this, that this man came running and he knelt before Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen a grown man beg, it's a very odd and humbling situation. What makes it even more profound is Luke 18.18. 18, and its countertext tells us that he was a certain ruler. A certain ruler tells us that he had all the religion. He had all of the power. He had all the money. He had all the fame. He was the rock star of the day. I don't know who we could put that as. Because either you're a rock star or you're religious. You kind of don't find both, do you? But put yourself in the place of the person you would find most successful for the moment. Whoever that would be. And they've got all the money. They've got all the fame. They're a mover and a shaker. And what they say shapes the world around them. And this person falls now to his knees before Jesus. He certainly has lots. That is clear in our text. And he says, good teacher. Look at verse 16 with me. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. Don't miss this. This guy was an achiever and he was an acquirer. He got stuff. We'll see by the time we're done with the story, the man leaves with great possessions. Actually, the word we'll find is tremendous Huge acquirements. He had acquired a great deal. That's an important word. What that tells us, he wasn't sort of just born in this stuff, just kind of fell into his lap. This guy gained it. He got it. He traded. He did whatever he could. And one way or another, this guy got the stuff. And here's the danger, beloved. If you're that kind, you know, what you used to kind of, yeah, I'm a man, I want to tighten up my bootstraps, I want to make it happen. Is that Eternal life just looks like the next thing to get. 
Did you notice that's the way he phrases it? What thing do I have to do to get this? To get it? What do I have to do? So imagine the man saw, you know, he's walking among us today and he sees the Bentley and he wants it. One of those ones that are kind of silvery, so they kind of blend in with the road, you know. Because after all, you're going to spend all that money. What you want is for no one to see it. And, you know, and, you know, and you, with, of course, with the license plate that says something like mega cash or whatever. And, and you know, he's like, okay, now, okay, so what's he going to do? He's going to go there and he's going to find out how much it is. And he's going to figure out what does he have to do to get that much so that he can trade that in so he can get the Bentley. That's what he would have done. Then he looks and he says, a house in Chelsea. How do I get a house in Chelsea? Well, how much is that? Well, what do I need to do that? What things do I need to, to move and shake? And what things do I need to trade? And who do I need to buddy up with? And hey, if I can get this guy with the zoning commission, and if I could find this particular person, maybe I can drop things down a little bit. And he moves and he shakes, and sooner or later, bada boom, bada bing, he's got the house. In everything that he's done in life, he's basically figured out the route to get it, and he's gotten it. Pity the gal who catches his scope. And now he looks and he comes and he, and he falls before Jesus and he says, what do I have to do for this? And Jesus has so much more to say to him than just, okay, well, here's what you can do to get it. But please hear me, beloved. If your walk with Christ, your eternal life is all about an it, you've got it all backwards. Because this is not about an it. It isn't going to help you. It isn't going to save you. He is. And there's the danger. Because it's a real easy sidetrack and diversion. We can kind of look and think, oh, Jesus, oh, it. And the, it can be the power of prayer. It can be the book you read that led you to Christ. You know, the, one of those kind of really cool books that kind of somewhere in the end of it all leads you to the cross. Or it can be the friend you know, it's a person. It's still in it because it's the, it's the bus that got you there. And there you are praising the bus and forgetting about why you are where you, where, why you are where you are. And, and understand, in this, this guy looks and he says, okay, what do I have to do to get it? And Jesus says then, well, uh, why do you call me good? Isn't, aren't, isn't that supposed to be reserved for God? And notice he's fishing, of course, who he really views Jesus to be in this. And he says, well, look at it. And notice he says in verse 17, if you want to enter into life. Now, now, notice, by the way, there's a very big difference between it, getting it, and entering in. The term to enter in, by the way, is a term that is most commonly used in regards to intimate relationships. You enter into an agreement, well, you enter into a covenant. You don't, by the way, seal a covenant, nail a covenant, land a covenant. You enter into a covenant. You can land a promise. You can seal the deal on a promise. A promise, by the way, doesn't require a relationship, but a covenant demands it. But to enter in requires relationship. He goes, you're trying to get it, and I'd rather you, have, I'd rather you enter into this relationship. But let me fish it out for you. Well, why don't you keep the commandments? Let's start there. Which ones? Notice again, he's still kind of on his scope. He knows how to get things done. Tell me what, I, what hoops I have to jump and I'm going to get there. And notice Jesus, by the way, lists six. If we're going to pull off the covet here for the one where it tells us in regards to our, our uh, honoring and loving our neighbor as ourselves, It is important to recognize 
commandments were listed as ten. But if you were to tear apart the Torah, the first five books, there are 613 commandments. Of the 613 commandments, by the way, 248 of them are actually encouraging. In other words, they tell you to do something, and that makes 365 of them, like the days in the year, that are prohibitive. They tell you not to. Don't do this. Don't do that. So he asks, which one of those? What's the most important? For some of the religious leaders, that would be the Sabbath. For some of the religious leaders, that would be in regards to the temple. For some, it would be regards to learning some form of discipline. And yet in all of that, please understand, Jesus goes back to those ten, and he lists six of them. Please hear me in this. The first four of the Ten Commandments are intimate. The last six, then, are public. In other words, the first four, if you will, are vertical. They're between you and God. Their first four are on purpose. Then the next six are in light of that relationship we have. Let's do this. And he starts, by the way, interestingly enough, with the six that are all public. Did you notice that? Though he pulls from Leviticus 19, he sums up, if you will, those last six are all in relation to how we treat each other. But let me, if I can loosely paraphrase Exodus 20, when God actually gives them the the law the first time, how the first four go. God says, listen, only I got you out of that bondage and slavery that you came from. Nobody else did that, just me. And I want you to know I did that because I want a relationship with you. I also want you to know I'm a jealous God. Five different times in the Torah, he'll say that, one for each book. Interesting, by the way, please hear me in this. This does not give God a character flaw, but better yet, it shows his deep care for you. Have you learned you can't be jealous over something you don't want? Now, I'm not a coffee drinker. You're welcome to drink all the coffee you want. You're not going to go to hell for it. Then I'm aware. <coughs> it isn't a sin issue. All right, with that statement. So if you want a lifetime supply of Starbucks coffee, I'll congratulate you, but I will not be jealous. I'm not, pardon me, I'm going to probably make enemies. But I'm not a country music fan. I have a hard time putting the two words together, but hey, you can love it all you want. If you want Slim, Willie, Witkins, you know, whatever, overall, Larry, you know, uh, and, and, you got, and you got the whole box set, you know, working as a hobo on the, you know, freighter lines, giddy up, y'all. I'm not going to be jealous. And God is not jealous of stuff he doesn't want either. I guarantee you there's things I probably like that you're like, yeah, that's all yours, buddy. But the only thing in Scripture that God is jealous of is you, because it's the only thing He wants. He says, listen, I'm jealous of you because what I really want is you, so please, as a result, can I be your only one? That's the first commandment. We read it as no other gods before me. Now, we would read it in the sense, well, no other gods before him, so I could go hide somewhere and do that. That's okay. The problem is, the term is panim. Panim, by the way, means face. And the idea of it is, I don't want anything before me. No competition. But those of you who are married, you get this. Imagine if I said to my wife 26 and a half years ago, yeah, well, you know what? I think that you will be the best. And there will be a couple others, but, but you'll be my favorite. That would be nonsense. And what God really wants is love. 
So he says, look at first. Could there be no one else in your life like me, please? Second, could there be nothing else in your life that competes either? Stuff you make, stuff you hold, please? Because you're aware of that. Most people commit adultery with, not with other people, but with other things. Their work, a ministry, some ambition. And their heart goes to somewhere else. And it goes, third, I want my name different than everyone else's. It's pretty simple. I want to be different than everyone else in your life. And then fourth, can we please take a day aside and spend it together each week, please? That's the first four. Notice he doesn't mention any of those yet because Jesus is peeling aside that the guy can do all of these other things and have none of the first four. And so he says to him, hey, well, what about these? And he lays out the six. And in verse 20, it tells us then, the young man said to him, well, all these things I've kept from my youth. Well, what do I still lack? Now, don't miss this. In the sight of the world, this man is great. The very thing the disciples are arguing over. He's great because he has money. He has lots of stuff. He has power. He has fame. He has influence. The man has everything that the world offers you and says satisfies. And yet, he's the one saying here, but it, I'm still missing something. And can I say, if you get all of this stuff, and you're anything like me, you feel like you're the biggest defect in the world because you're like, how in the world can't this satisfy? I don't get it. I've got everything. I've nothing left to get that I can think of to make me happy. And I'm just not satisfied. There's a craving in my soul. I look at that and I think, man, though he had wealth and power, he was unsatisfied. Something in the core of his soul was starving, even at the endless feasts of honor that he was so accustomed to. So what am I still missing? In Mark's countertext, chapter 10, verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Because he realized the guy was trying so hard, but he was missing it. I used to coach women's basketball. Guys, too, by the way, but women were, for whatever reason, infinitely more colorful. And I just remember that when we first met them, they hadn't gotten to double digits in four years. Now, if you know anything about basketball, chances are, if you're doing well, you get somewhere right about between 80 and 120 points a game. So if you actually never get 10, you're, you're not good at all. You're, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, bad's the kindest word you could use. And I just remember watching them at the beginning, and they were exhausted. It wasn't for lack of effort. They were just so ill-trained. They had no idea how to spend their energy in any way that was productive. And they were getting worked. Now, the the other teams that played them loved playing them because they got three digits out of it. It was like 114 to 4, I think, was one game before we ever... Now, by God's grace, we had a whole summer to actually help kind of drive that out. But please hear me. You looked at them and you kind of started to see, are some of you, this, are you happy with this? Or are you just tired of trying so hard and getting nothing? 
Maybe that's your kind of life right now. You're trying so hard and you're getting nothing. And I, mean, and I understand Jesus is looking and he looks at you with love because he realizes the effort and the desire is there. What's left now is to actually give proper information. But what we're going to find is when Jesus actually tells him the truth and that the guy says it's too much. Though he had all of that stuff and he could tell wealth and power and, and fame and influence and yet he had, and you could see he had so much to lose but he didn't realize how much he had to lose as he was staring before Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 21, if you want to be perfect. Now there's a word that means flawless. It's not the word that's used here. And there's a word telaios, like we get the word tetelestai. Some of you are f- familiar with the word Jesus says on the cross. It is finished. It's the word that's used here. Telaios means taking it to its proper end. If you look at the 24 on one side, it ends at Hampstead Heath, and on the other side, it ends at Pimlico. It says it right on the front of the bus, 24 Pimlico. You can take it, of course, from here all the way down into Westminster. You can go visit Big Ben or any of those places simply by taking the 24. We often recommend people who are visitors to take the 24. First of all, they get the cool thing of riding a double-decker bus, but also they get to sit at the top and see a lot of the sights while they do so. But if you're going to take the bus to its end, you will end up at Pimlico. That's its proper end. The bus has been telaios, perfected. It is gone, it's perfect, or the end of its route. That's the word Jesus is using here. He's like, you're taking steps in the right direction right now, but if you really want to take it to the proper end, this is what I'd like you to do. And Jesus is going to tell him something that basically punches him in the solar plexus. He says, if you really want to go and take it to its proper end, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Apparently that was too much. Because we read in verse 22, When the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now please hear me in this. This becomes the problem with every one of us. We don't hear in this that God is a God of instead of's. We hear him as a God of nots, which is, of course, the wrong way to do this. And you're aware of the fact God never removes, he replaces. Now, maybe you've heard that. But what happens is when Jesus says, go do this, it's so loud that we can't hear the second part. He says, all that stuff you have right now that you clearly doesn't satisfy you anyways, or you wouldn't be here in the first place. But all of that stuff, you got everything you thought you wanted. Listen, It's making this too difficult for you to follow me because you can't pack that heavy and follow me. And he says, listen, if you could just give it away. Notice Jesus doesn't say sell it all and give it to me. Because the point isn't, to be honest, what he does with the money. Though clearly he says give it to the poor. The point is that everything he has at the moment has become cement shoes. It's become the millstone that keeps him from following Jesus. And I ask you something as I ask myself this. Am I actually convinced that God couldn't give me better? What am I afraid to give up? What is it if God said, hey, let go of this? I'd be afraid to give it up. Because somehow I would be convinced somewhere that God couldn't give me better or God wouldn't give me better. And if that's the case, what kind of father do I think I have? Because God never removes, but he replaces. 
And Jesus is saying, look it, this is what it is. You have all this stuff, but you're lacking. You know you lack. You feel it inside. You're lacking. There's something missing. And Jesus says, listen, here's what I offer you. You can actually get treasures in heaven and you can follow me. You can follow me. You can follow me for the rest of eternity. From this point on, you can know what I smell like, what I, what I sound like, what I snore. You can, you can people go, well, tell me about Jesus. And you go, let me tell you about him because I know him. Man, I know him. I know him so well. And Jesus says, listen, you can't pack up all those bags and follow me. There's the problem. But he loved him to tell him this. He says, please, can you see what I'm offering? Because the only other logical answer here is we're just convinced what he has to offer isn't good enough. But to say, look at whatever I have is yours, then Jesus says, well, we're, we're going to use it to bless people. Because if it's mine, it's going to, it's going to touch someone's life. Here's a look at Do you really want to do something great? You really want to be great, boy? Because he's a young man. You've got your whole life in front of you. And you could fill it with adventure by following me. Or you could stay here with your stuff. But I think it's, I think it's time now to realize Jesus has warned us of this more than once. Back in Matthew 10:39 and in Matthew 16:25, he's told us, "Look, if you wanted to seek to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you let go of this one, I'll give you better." That's a loose paraphrase, but you can check it on your own. He goes, "Man, you have acquired so much here, but I think it's time for you to actually start developing your eternal portfolio, because clearly you're missing." What would it be like to be a disciple at this moment? To stand with Jesus and watch this guy come and drop his knees, beg Jesus, and then after all of that, him walk away. And us to kind of look and go, wow, how much do you think you really have to lose? What do you think you have to lose that he couldn't give you better? And look, sometimes it is a total surrender. Sometimes, to be honest, it's not. Sometimes it's something altogether different. Abraham leaving Ur. Sometimes he restores it with something so infinitely better and actually relatively close. But he restores when things become better for both parties. For instance, the prodigal son. The prodigal is a much better individual when he returns back. Sometimes it's a Lazarus thing where it just seems like it's total death and he raises it anyways. But he knows how to give you better. So Jesus turns this to a teaching moment because he realizes this isn't just between him and this guy. It's between him and his, his students as well. So he asks him this. How hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Here's the problem. We had been taught by the religious leaders that God's greatest blessings were financial. And you can go to churches like that, by the way. Do I believe God wants to prosper you? Absolutely. But if you think the best thing God has to offer you is money, boy, are you selling him short. So the idea here that Jesus looks and says that it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven, 
into the kingdom of heaven, that would blow a gasket in every one of us because we'd think, well, wait a minute, I would have thought that God was blessing this guy in the first place. And because he was being so blessed, I would have thought this guy was an inch away anyways. For what it's worth, it says in the countertext in Mark 10.24, how hard is it for those who trust in riches? And here becomes the problem. The word hard here, by the way, isn't just the word that would mean difficult. There are words for that. But in the Greek, this word, by the way, is the word duskalos. And duskalos, by the way, means impractical. This is hard in that sense. It's just impractical. Hugo and I are walking somewhere, and someone's going to throw something really, really high up. It would be impractical to assume that Hugo's going to grab it from me, because I've got about a foot on him in regards to our height. It would be hard, but not impossible, but it's impractical. And it's the word that Jesus uses. He says it would be easier, and the word for easier, by the way, yukapas, is the word that actually means something that is cut well, or we might say it's fitting. It would be more fitting for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it would be for a rich man entering to heaven. And then the disciples look at him, his students look and go, whoa, then who in the world could be saved? Those guys look like they have the greatest blessing. But please hear me as we bring this to a close. Here's our problem. It started with children. Do I remind you of that? Children who didn't come with a lot of luggage. Children who didn't come with a lot of baggage. Because they just came to be with Jesus. The disciples were putting boundaries up that Jesus certainly didn't want. And they just came. They didn't come with a list of requirements or pretense. They just came to be with Jesus for just a moment, to get a touch from him, to get a prayer from him, just to be with him. Jesus, you guys learn from this, right? Learn how carefree these kids are. How safe they feel. How free they feel to explore. Now we know in the scary world around us, we that appear to be adults, we get in this place where we know that part of it is is that our job is to keep putting cushions out. Now that's part of the reasons why the kids feel safe. I'm still as a parent uh, seeing, you know, the other day I was sitting at a coffee house having my tea and the gal next to me had a little boy and that little boy was everywhere but where he probably was supposed to be but he had this nasty habit of constantly jumping under the table and popping up really quick like it was going to be funny and immediately my first thing that I did without even thinking about is my hand went on the corner of the table because I knew how bad that can be for a kid to jump up and hit the corner of the table it was a it was an involuntary response by this point because I just wanted that kid to be safe And you realize, look at the contrast between these kids versus this man. Those kids had nothing this man had. And yet they were the ones to be envied. This man had everything the world envies. But he was still lacking. There's the sad part about it. And Jesus, if you will, God through Matthew, lays these things before us and says, if you could choose one of these, which one would you choose? Would you choose all the stuff of this guy? And be like him? Would you choose just to be free like one of these children again? Carefree and safe? Strangely enough, that would be the one that would actually follow him. And Jesus looks and his disciples say, I thought these guys were the ones that were saved. How in the world? And he goes, who then can be saved if these guys can't? 
He's like, he's not saying a rich person can't give their life to Christ. But what happens is, is if we're going to call him our Lord somewhere down the line, we have to learn to do more than just kind of lean on him for a moment. We have to lay our lives down for him. And that, we think, is a lot to lose. And we see so much more of what we think we have to lose than what we think we have to gain by following Jesus. So Jesus says, with men this is impossible. This can't be a program. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter jumps up and realizes at this moment, he's in the right place. And he says, hey, what about us then? What do we get? And already Jesus looks at him and says, you already blew it. Because it isn't about what you get. You're hanging out with me, Peter. And you're asking what I'm going to give you? Because look it, I want to warn you. Anything that you have to leave behind, I'll give you better. Isn't that what he's saying? Anything you have to leave behind. Now, God is not telling you, by the way, go and ditch your family. Go be irresponsible. What he is saying is this. He's saying, for my name's sake, you're going to lose stuff. And for my name's sake, nothing should stop you from letting me be Savior and Lord of your life. But if that's the case, I want you to realize you're going to walk out this building here in a few moments perhaps and you'll see people in the expensive cars. There's a Bentley that's usually parked right out here. Now, by the way, I'm not a car person so I don't think I'm somehow inadvertently lusting after that. I, I'd get a Jeep and give the rest to someone else. Or get a couple of Jeeps and give the rest to someone else. But, uh, I'm be honest. but you're going to see people and they've got everything that this world has to offer. And he says, oh, they're first now. But they'll be last later. And when it really matters, Jesus gives us that perspective one more time and says, you've got to get that eternal perspective. You're looking for greatness. And Jesus says, Where? Where do you really want to be great? Here for the temporary moment? You want to be the boss of Monopoly? Sooner or later, you're going to have to fold the game up and go back to real life. If you do it here, the, the Gentiles lord over themselves. They, they love being great and they love being honored here on earth. And they're first now, but you will not want to be where they are when they stand before eternity and the regeneration. And then there's you. And if you follow me, I'm still going to take care of you. It isn't like I'm swearing you to poverty or misery. I'm going to give you what you need. But first and foremost, what you need is me, Jesus speaking. And if I'm going to follow Jesus, you know where I'm going to follow him to? I remind you, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be murdered. I'm going to follow him to the cross. And here's the thing. If you're to pick up your cross and follow him, can I warn you? You can't pick up your cross and carry all that stuff too. Only Your hands are only built for one or the other. The same way that your lips can't kiss more than one person at a time, and I'm not encouraging you to try to prove me wrong. God intended that to be a one-on-one for a reason. 
And Jesus would go to that cross because your sins and my sins would take him there. And because of his love and commitment to us and his whole desire for it to be about forgiveness and restoration, the cross was the place where those two things could be advocated. And as they were, Jesus then says, Hey, I will die for you because you're the only thing I want. And then raise again to give you brand new life. And you can't drag all this stuff that you lean on and you trust and rely on over there if it competes with me. As we go to prayer, beloved, I know that one thing that the church is supposed to do, and I mean that by the sense of these meetings we have or we assemble, is to get back to an eternal perspective. Because we get caught in the temporary so much around us. But we've got to have it at the moment. Psalm 73, Asaph says he almost stumbled when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he gets to the point where it looks like he did more than almost stumble. He got angry and he got frustrated and he got confused. And he's like, man, I've done this for nothing. And then it says, then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. See, somewhere when he got into the sanctuary, what he saw was eternity again. And he realized how dangerous the world really is. And maybe there are people out there right now that you even know. And they're being unscrupulous. They're being... Uh, completely against the rules, and yet they seem to be getting ahead. I want to warn you, you can't get ahead forever because if you're first now but without the Lord, you'll be last later and you don't want that. It's like being first in a dream. And no matter how hard you try, sooner or later you're going to wake up. So let me ask you this as we pray. Christians, Is there anything in your life you're holding on to so tightly that no matter what the Lord says, it won't matter? Is there anything keeping you from following him like you should? Are you still convinced that God can't give you better or wouldn't give you better? I think it's time to reconcile that. But if you're not sure if you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd love the privilege of giving you that choice today as we pray. The Bible says if we're really willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus really is the Lord and believe in our heart that Jesus actually died and rose for us, he says, you know what? You'll be saved. That's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I trust you. And I know here in this room we have a lot to consider. Here in this room, Lord, you've walked us through a text where what we see is somebody that seems to be the pinnacle of success from a worldly perspective. But a complete failure in your eyes as he walks away from the opportunity to follow you. And I wonder how many of us here have walked away from the opportunity to follow you. Like somehow we think being found by you is enough, but not following you. And we recognize, God, that this isn't about a ticket to heaven. This is about a relationship with you. It isn't about something to acquire. It is about a relationship to enter in. And you will teach us in John 17 that eternal life is to know you. To know the one true God in you, Jesus, who has been sent. And God, I just pray 
that we would recognize more and more and more what we could gain in following you more than what we would fear to let go of in the expense of it. So please, today, lift us up and show us eternity one more time so that somehow in all of this, we could see what this is all really for, being with you for eternity. And I recognize there will be a day when we will see you for who you are and be like you as a result. When we'll be in much better of a position to take the very things you want to give us. Because they would go for so much better of use. And I pray, Lord, that you would turn us into people who hunger to follow you more than anything. And we would travel as light as you call us to. And while heads are bowed, as bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus, I'd like to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to simply give a confident and resounding Amen. What you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I am a sinner. Every person here, me included, we're sinners. And I stand before you guilty in that sin. But you so loved me that you gave your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me so that all my sin could be punished, all my guilt could be punished, without me having to spend eternity away from you. He died on the cross, and my bill was paid. It was taken to its proper end. And yet, just like you promised, on the third day, he rose again to give me new life, a life under his lordship, his reinvention, and a life now covered in you, where I could be free, safe, cared for. Make me that now. I declare Jesus as my Savior, my ransom, and my Lord, and I say, have me now. I give myself to you. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say Amen. God, you've heard us. You've heard us today. I just pray now that you would lead us in that which would bring you pleasure. May we walk in that life, please. Jesus, in your name. Amen.
Life I live, I give is all for 